0: May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You bring a little girl home from the hospital, and she is an absolute doll. As perfect as perfect can be. Complete joy. Her smile as she gets a little older, completely captivating. And she's Perfect. You don't even mind getting up in the middle of the night to feed and change her. And all through that first year, she's just about as close to a perfect miniature human being as you could possibly imagine. And then you get a call one day from the hospital. Seems there was a mix-up. They're terribly sorry, but the little girl that you think is your daughter is not. Biologically, the child that you have is not your daughter. Your daughter lives in Columbus or Chillicothe or Toledo or somewhere. Here's the question. Would you fix the problem? And you're thinking, hmm, Now that's, ask me in 12 years. <laughs> Might have a different answer then, you know. Um, but what a tough question, right? That's a really good question to think of. Now, I hope that never happened to anybody, and this is t- totally hypothetical, but, but just for a moment. That's a good question to ask. That's one you could kind of kick around for a minute, you know, to think, I don't know, but that's a, that's a really good question. How about another one? I was thinking the other day, I, 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 I woke early in the morning, and I don't know how this thought occurred to me, but I, I looked around and, um, you know, there's this, this little table beside my bed, and um, my wife does what wives do. She kind of makes it look fancy, you know. I don't know why. It's like some, you know, it's tablecloth. Then there's like another little one over top of it. Why have one when you can have two? Right? And, um, and then there's a, there's a lamp <laughs> and, and there's a, a little picture a picture frame and there's a cross and then, you know, some of the stuff that I threw out of my, my pocket the night before, you know, so. And I looked at this early in the morning and I thought to myself, well, that's a little slot of stuff, you know, early in the morning, you know, on this one little table. And then I just sort of looked around the room and I, I realized there was a lot of stuff everywhere and I, I wondered what it would be like this is what I think of first thing in the morning if I had to catalog every single item that I own have you ever thought about that if you ever could you imagine just take a minute and think about if you had to write down every single thing from popcorn poppers to you know to waffle irons to uh you know i don't know to those Plumbing parts left over from the toilet fix and repair that you did in 1998 that are still out in the garage, you know? Everything. Everything in your house, everything in your car, in your basement, in your office, in your other office, you know? Everything in every item. If you have any idea as to what that would look like, I, I, I'll tell you. The average U.S. household. Has 300,000 items in it, from paper clips to popcorn poppers. Now, some of you might say, hmm, I think we're doing a little better than that, right? Um, they, 300,000 items. And you don't even have to be an adult to have a lot of stuff. American children make up 4% of the world's population. Actually, a little less than that. 3.7% of all children in the world are American children. But our children must be particularly good, well-behaved children, because Santa Claus has spent a disproportionate amount of his time in this country. American children, though making up less than 4% of the world's population, own 47% of all toys in the world. Half of all the toys ever made in the world are right here in the United States of America, owned by our children. As I said, they're very (laughs) well-behaved. Santa Claus is constantly here. Could you imagine making up a list? Now, here's the question, okay, having, having done all that little, uh, you know, intellectual work here, and if you could only keep five, five items from your list of over 300,000, what would they be? Now, you, you kind of going through a list, real quick, you're checking that off. My point is just this. That's a good question, isn't it? That's a really good question. What five items, if I could only have five, would I keep? There are, of course, for every good, thoughtful, deep, reflective question, a thousand ridiculous ones. Why is a boxing ring square? Hmm? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Why are there so many syllables in the word monosyllabic? Why doesn't Tarzan have a beard? <laughs> yeah, it took you a minute. Yeah, there. If a person had multiple personality disorder and they threatened suicide, would it be a hostage situation? <laughs> Why do people say "Take me out to the ball game" after they've already been there for seven innings? You're already there. Why do doctors call what they do practice? But maybe that question's not so uh, silly after. <laughs> Your grammar school teacher was wrong. There are indeed silly questions. There are ridiculous ones, right? Some more silly, more absurd than others. But the old adage, there are no silly questions, is wrong. There are silly ones. The question is trying to figure out what's a good question and what's a silly question. I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus, together with a dozen men. Maybe a few teenagers, about 15 men in all probably, climb into a boat that's about 15 feet long and about 7 feet wide, only about 4 feet deep. A fishing boat. They climb into a boat and they shove off from shore. They're, um, he's, he's gathered this great following, so there's this huge crowd on the shore. And as they push off, it's sort of an escape. They're getting away from this big crowd that's been following There are a few lucky men around who are also fishermen who happen to have boats nearby, and they want to follow. They want to do what the others can't, and they jump in their boats too, and so you have other boats, maybe another boat of 15 or so, and then another boat of 15. So there's about 45 men in 3 boats, and they're shoving off from the shore, and they're heading out to sea. And it comes late in the evening as they take off, and Jesus goes up to the front of the boat, and he, he finds this big pillow. He's a carpenter. He's no, nothing about sailing or, or rowing. or anything. He goes up to the front of the boat, and he lays down, and he falls asleep. You've been there. You know what this is like when you've been kind of hounded and harassed by people for a long time, and you just feel so pressured that you need a, a break. And, and that's what he does. He, he goes to the front of the boat to get a little bit of escape. And I think his friends know that he needs it. They see him lying up there, and they they know that he he needs this escape, and so um, you know that they're they're feeling good for him. That they they know that he's um he's getting well deserved shut eye. And Jesus had told them when he got into the boat, "Let's go to the other side." And so I think that the friends think that this is only about rest. This trip has nothing to do with whatever's on the other side. Because if you knew what was on the other side, you would say. We're not going there because of those people. Do you know what's on the other side? That's a good question. I'll tell you what's on the other side. Pig farmers. Now, you might think, wow, that sounds good, bacon. But no, nobody thinks that. Nobody in Jesus' little group thinks, wow, we're going to have a bacon sandwich when we get to the other side. Nobody thinks that. Pig farmers are the most repulsive human beings. Because pigs are are an unclean animal, and so for someone to herd them like you would for, since sheep is just is just uh, repulsive, so they're not going there. They're not going to the other side of the tracks for a vacation. They're getting in the boat for a time of rest and respite. And Jesus' friends are enjoying this time, I imagine, just as much as he is. Until. The skies start getting gray. The Sea of Galilee is set down into a, a depression. And, and as such, in, in ancient times, and, and even today, I mean, we know better now because of radar, but in ancient times where there was no radar, a storm could come up and overtop the hill crest and down into the, the, the sea basin with almost no warning. And this is exactly what happened. All of a sudden, gray clouds descend quickly upon the sea. And all of a sudden, it begins to storm. It begins to rain quite heavily. And the waves start to crash into the boat. Mark says all of a sudden, there was water beginning to fill up the boat. It was already splashing over the sides. This is sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation real quickly although there's only one deck but everybody is at work right so rowers are rowing and there's a sail mast and, and somebody's pulling down the sail and, and there are people probably with some kind of uh, utensils to, to shovel water out and i imagine i see other men in my mind's eye like with their hands cupped you know kind of splashing water out of the boat as well and jesus is asleep in the front of the boat now, I don't know if he just was a really hard sleeper, had been through a really difficult time or, or, you know, whatever. But he's asleep in the front of the boat. And somebody eventually looks around and says, you know, what's this? You know, what's going on here? And, and they go up and, and they rouse him. They shake him. That's what Mark says. They they rouse him. They They try to raise him up. I think Mark probably forgot to add this, but somebody had something sarcastic in there like, get up, you're going to miss your own death, you know, or something like that, you know. But what do they say? Don't you care that we're drowning? We're perishing. Aren't you aware or don't you care that we are about to perish? That's a good question, isn't it? Don't you care that we are perishing? You heard the story, didn't you? Jesus wakes up. He stands up. And if you notice, if you look closely at what Mark says, he rebukes the wind. He speaks to the wind and to the sea. Mark four thirty nine. He woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. Literally, muzzle yourself. (laughs) Be hushed. Shush you know No, no more. You notice that he speaks to the wind and to the sea. He doesn't get up and pray. He doesn't speak to God. He speaks directly to the sea. Did you hear the psalm this morning? The psalm that you um, w- w- recited together with me and, and, and Carol. They cried to the Lord, to Yahweh, in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. He quieted the waves of the sea. He, Yahweh, does this. Another good question comes up. Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's a really good question. And the reader knows, you know, you're the reader. You're like, you got to be old enough to know this. You're like Horseshack on Welcome Back Carter, right? Oh, 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 I know this answer. I know this. Bob, you remember that show, right? Yeah. Oh, 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 I know the answer to this question. I know who he is. But then comes a silly question. I want you to see this. Will you take your bulletin? Look just at this gospel lesson in verse 40. It's, um, It's towards the end here. There's only 41. So way to the end. Verse 40. We get a really silly question. A silly question. He says to them, Jesus says to them, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Now that's a silly question, isn't it? It's a storm. We're in a tiny little boat. The waves are crashing over immediately. So much so the boat is filling up. People die in storms like these. Why are we afraid? Well, there's a storm brewing. That's why we're afraid. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a good question. It's a silly question. But actually Jesus says something even harsher. In, in Mark's original, he says, why are you being cowards? Why are you so cowardly? Let me flip uh, real fast to a passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. St. John writes this, And the one seated upon the throne said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of w- the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire. In that litany of people who will not make it into the kingdom, the very first type of person listed, the cowardly, same word. Jesus says to his friends, why are you being so cowardly? The silly question isn't, why are you afraid? The silly question is this. Don't you care? Spoken by the disciples to Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? That's a silly question. Of course he cares. Of course he cares. What they should have said, instead of questioning, don't you care, they should have said, Lord, we need your help. Lord, wake up. We're depending upon you. And how often is that the case with us, that we cower in fear when we should turn to God? That we're fearful and frightened when instead we should pray. When we say, oh, Lord, don't you care about me? Don't you know that I'm perishing here? Ancient people knew, especially in times of storm, they knew they were vulnerable. Uh, Their homes were not built hurricane-proof. They didn't have earthquake-proof regulations guarding building codes. These things, their boats often did capsize and people drowned. Nature was scary. And you know what? It's still scary. I mean, we have a a world that's built to take a pretty heavy punch from Mother Nature, but we found out that she can pack a pretty powerful punch when she wants to, can't she? Homes can still be destroyed. Businesses can still be destroyed. Tornadoes still wreck havoc. Who wants to stand up to a tsunami? Yeah, it's a pretty scary word out there. Mark says, this is the one who can speak to the wind and the waves. And if it happens with the real storms of life, if the Lord expects us to stand up to the real storms of life, the ones that nature hands out, what about the metaphoric ones? What about the metaphorical storms that come our way? Uh, Together with you, I was horrified when I watched the news this week and saw what happened in Charleston i so glad when I um, when I heard this morning that their bells were ringing at 10 o'clock all across the city because our bell was ringing at 10 o'clock too. They were part of this, but when I when I saw what happened, I was I was horrified, distressed that a man walks into a church and kills people because of the color of their skin, and not just because they were black, because they were black Christians as well. And we could be tempted to say, God, don't you care? Don't you care? Of course he cares. And you know what What? what struck me even more powerfully? It, you know, than the the, the the recoil that I had, the repulsion I had from what happened, was the response. I was stunned. I was stunned when I heard what these men and women who went to the, the bail hearing, did you hear this this week? They go to the bail hearing and you would think that they would say, oh, you know, I'd strangle you if I could. You know, let me through that... that That's not what they said. What they said over and over and over again, we forgive you. God have mercy on you. Turn to Christ. I heard this man say, turn to Christ, repent. What in the world would give a person the sort of strength to look at that kind of horrific situation and say, I forgive you. I'll tell you what. They look to the one... Who can calm all sorts of storms? And when we see things that happen in places like Syria and Iraq, Egypt and Libya, we're tempted to say, Oh God, don't you care? Of course he cares. Of course he does. Instead of asking silly questions, don't you care? Instead, we should pray words of faith, Lord, we need your help. Or in good Anglican parlance, Lord, have mercy. Um, There's a a story of an 1800s Anglican clergyman. Um, His name was John Wesley. He was an Oxford scholar, uh, the son of a clergyman. His his mother was a a brilliant woman, taught her children. Um, She had 19 children, 10 of whom survived. She taught her 10 children to read in English, Greek, and Latin by the time they were 10. Um, So he he comes from this this fantastic home. And in uh, 1735... He decides he is going to be a missionary to the Americas, and he's going to Savannah. So he leaves from from Kent, um, and and he heads to to Savannah, Georgia, to be a a priest, a rector of Christ Church in Savannah that's still in existence, and a a missionary to the American Indians. And while he's on board this boat, uh, sailing for America, this terrible storm brews up over the North Atlantic. It was so awful that it broke the ship's mast. And he writes in his journal about how the sailors were crying in fear, certain that everybody was going to perish. And this man, John Wesley, this this Anglican priest, this ordained Oxford scholar, he sees this small group of Moravian Christians, and they weren't acting like anybody else on the boat. Instead of crying and screaming and, and, uh, you know, calling out in anguish, they sat in little circles and sang hymns. They smiled and they had this sense of joy and peace. And this sight, it it just moved Wesley to the core. It changed him more than anything he had ever seen in his life. That in the midst of a terrible, life threatening storm, this group of Christians had a peace that could not be moved. And he wanted that. I want that. Here's a good question. Do you want that? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.